Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to What a Load of Cobblers, Friday Night Lights, the podcast equivalent of a Matthew Rush surge through an opposition defence. I'm Tom Reid and on the eve of fans returning to Sixfields, I'm joined by four people frothing at the mouth to get back into Sixfields. Or maybe that's a normal demeanour. It's Andy Bodfish, Ian Brandt, Brendan Walsh and in from the cold, Jefferson Lake. How are you doing guys? You all right? Good evening. Good, thanks man. All right mate, yeah. Good stuff. How are you doing Andy? It's been a been a good week for you, and have you been in doing any work or been keeping your, you know? Yeah, been, it's, uh, yeah, been um, doing a couple of new shifts down at Eurosport, and um, I started having some conversations again about um, some of the events that were um, postponed this year, about them happening again next year. So there is uh, there's light at the end of the tunnel, I think. We're going to start a campaign soon to get you on Radio Northampton when Tim Oglethorpe can do it. So that'll kick on in, in earnest in, in the new year. <laughs> um, impossible comment. No, no, no. It's, it's big shoes to fill, to be fair. Um, what's your football moment of the week, Andy? Uh, well, I was quite interested um, in Edison Cavani um, scoring those two goals against uh, Saints last week, like watching Man United of old. And then... Yeah sort of sending his tweet out afterwards. And then, you know, in this this very modern way that footballers have to do, get told that something's just just not on, mate. And then you go, sort of, isn't it? Oh, OK, well, I'll apologise anyway. And then, you know, there's a, an awful lot of lip service paid to, oh, we need more education and all the rest of it. Um, but nothing really gets done. Um, well, he called his mate a negrito on oh, right, Twitter. Okay. Um, yeah. Which basically translates. I think as, it was on Instagram, actually. It was but, sorry, yeah. it was Insta. Okay, um, little black man. Thanks, little black man. You know, his mate was like, "Yeah, we call each other that. That's not a problem." But of course, nine years ago, when um, Luis Suarez called Patrice Evra the very same word, offence was taken, and next thing you know, you know, sort of the FA are getting involved. Um, it's it's just a sort of modern phenomenon, really, um, and there doesn't seem to be any way to get around it. Do you know what else is sort of like a, as old as time? Is football has been thick. <laughs> There's a lot of dunderheadedness about. It is. True. They need to realise that they're you know they're role models, aren't they? They can't be coming out with stuff like that. Um, did you see also the sort of um, the story um, of it just made me laugh this week of um, Keith Curl showing 
the strikers videos of Harry Kane. And I was like, <laughs> because they wanted the, they wanted he wanted them to improve their sort of a you know anticipation onto the ball. Yeah, he showed them it, it, some uh, highlights in the England game with Harry Kane in, didn't he? <laughs> but I'm thinking, you know, if it's that easy, you know, let's just show in Brazil 90, 1970 and be done with it. <laughs> so we're it definitely like the... we're not playing the same football that England are playing to give Harry Kane the service. You, exactly. you know, you could you could show the pony in the park uh, videos of of all the prize-winning horses from the Grand National all you want. It doesn't mean it's going to run like that. <laughs> like, I'm exactly. sorry. But, yeah. I was like, I was saying it was like um, giving, like, giving someone a, a paintbrush and showing them a, you know, a Caravaggio or Constable <laughs> painting and saying, have a go at that, lads. You know, I'll leave you through that. I'll have a little go at that. <laughs> Harry Kane's taken, you know, a long time to get the where he is doing his, like, superlative finishing and anticipation and everything. So, I just, that tickled me a little bit. I just thought that was, uh, yeah. I don't know if Keith, Keith Carl is, you know, Doing stuff tongue in cheek half the time, um, but Andy, yeah, that was a a good a good uh, a good football moment of the week. So sort of thought provoking. Ian's back from Chile Village. He's camped out there for a, a good set, good six nights. He's eating his weight in uh, deep fried prawns. How you doing, Ian? You right? Um, yeah, I'm doing all right. <laughs> Unfortunately, obviously because of the um, restrictions, it was takeaway only, so they had to post it through the letterbox to me oh. a little bit at the time, but. It was delicious. It was delicious. Isn't it good to see fans back in grounds? That's my football moment of the week. Um, there's a really good article on the BBC website from uh, Phil McNulty. Sorry, it's not the Sky Sports website, Joe. Oh, hey. um, sure, you've done an equally good article. Um, but this one, um, it's just it was at Wickham, and he just said, you know, I think when when the ref went down the tunnel, he's getting abuse from the Wickham fans. As they go. A little bit of the soul of the game has returned. Um, fans, you know, complaining about at their tellies for, for months. It's just not the same, is it, as, as being in a ground, even if you are spaced out. And there's there's more to come as well, isn't there? There's more to come. There's going to be, we're all going to be um, allowed back in soon, um, hopefully, uh, with this vaccine on the way. So, yeah, something to look forward to. I don't think that Keith Carl really would want the fans back. Because <laughs> let's face it, we can't be a little bit negative, and the groan at Sixfield is worse than like a Dutch porn film back in 1975. <laughs> uh, when something, when the ball goes out or whatever. So, Ian, so, yeah. Ian mentioned earlier about you know fans being spaced out at the Cobblers. It probably helps to be spaced out to watching Keith Girl football stuff. Now that's what I was thinking though, because we basically on Tuesday. I don't know if everyone watched it, but we parked the bus big time, and um, you know it is a bit sort of like it is. It's sort of quite scary to watch towards the end when we're just sort of clinging on. But do you reckon Keith Carroll will be able to play that sort of style in front of a paying audience? Because the paying audience is going to want us to come forward a little bit more. So I'm not sure he's going to be able to do that. You know, Can I be controversial, know, though? Like, I, yeah. I know, I, of course I get it. But it was poor at the back on Tuesday as well, which I thought was much better. I honestly don't think we clung on as much as some people thought. You think back to MK or even Swindon, you know, where it was literally, I go, always go back to one of Rob Page's last games, Bradford a couple of years ago, he went one nil up and we literally had 11 men on the penalty box. We were sat deep and they had a majority of the possession, but it wasn't like there were shots like whistling over the bar. I honestly can remember maybe two or three chances to them and we had two or three chances. Like, I think, I think we've definitely faced, we've, we've had it worse. And I'd, at the end of the day, we've said it before, 20th is the goal. I, I, I would rather go down playing uh, stay up playing what we're doing now and go down with 60% possession I really don't think it was as bad as everyone says but 
as we, we've said before, you know, I'm definitely a glass half full guy when it comes to cobblers. It's the optimism of youth, isn't it, Brendan? If we'll give you 10 years and then we'll keep doing the thing and then you'll be like, have you seen him parking the bus the whole game? I'm more worried about the fact that we've, you know, the last two goals have come from corners. And the style of defence is one thing, but I'd like to see, you know, when we do play it forward and play it long or, or short, which we've done a little bit this season as well, we just, I'd just like to see the clinicalness and a little bit more creativity. I'm not really bothered. I'm, we're always, we don't have the budget. We don't have the team to go out and play expansive football. I don't want it. I, what I want is just a little bit more clinicalness going forward because that's two goals and two games now from corners. Great. But we can't rely on set pieces of a game. Yeah, I, we've been arguing about this all week on Twitter. You know, Twitter sphere has been arguing about style v substance and all that, you know, winning games versus entertaining and you know, probably go on to the cows come home about that. But, um, Brendan, I saw on Twitter that you've made another couple of purchases. Give us a quick rundown of the couple of shirts you bought. <laughs> yeah. like the, um, the, the beaver one, because you were calling yourself the king of the beaver. In, um, the, <laughs> I in, think that in, was in, somebody in the, else the, the king of the beaver. Um, that was just, that was, <laughs> do you know what? That's one I, I haven't, that was a hole in my collection for a while. And it was actually you that sent me the link. And I was like, do you know what? Yeah, I, I mentioned earlier, I've, I've had a good week at work. I've been promoted. I was like, I'm going to treat myself. So yeah, um, I got that one, and then there was another collect. There's another collector who gets in on bits, and randomly he had two match worn shirts from the van, one of the Van Der seasons, I think it's 06, 07, from two of the like most random squad players that will definitely be a cobbler's pub quiz questioning. Well, probably now, um, Bonner and, and Laird, um, and yeah, I, I I didn't have the away one, so I, I got one. Of, he, he did it for me on the cheap, and that that turned up this week as well. So good post day today. Um, and hopefully I get a few more in and around Christmas. That's always a present that will keep me happy as a football shirt. Laird ticks another box because he's another forgotten cobbler, so that's that's always good. I really, he's yeah. just sort of like, um, Jake knew who he was, but I just couldn't really remember. And Van Denel for me are the dark years of the cobbler's kits because I just can't really remember many of them. And Van Denel, yeah. tell me about that. that. I couldn't tell you about the uh, the brand itself. It might be North America. Uh, they make so, ice hockey shirts. Yeah, I think they might have done. Yeah, yeah. there's not some Van Vanderdale shirts. I think a lot of people probably they're they're quite common online. That they're not like extra special, but I don't mind them. Yeah. We had, it's the badge that year was a bit dodgy, but um, the home one has a centered badge, and um, obviously Sean Dyche wore it in those years. So I've got um, I've got a story about that coming up, I think. But yeah, that that that's yeah, what yeah. I think when I think of Van Vanderdale. I think of, of big Sean Dyche at the back. Yeah, um, your Van Age shirt, which is on your Twitter that you, you're talking about, um, is made by Be- Beaver, which is like the best ever. <laughs> Whatever. Bring back Beaver. It is a good um, one. <laughs> but there's a woman, like an old, quite an old, older woman, I'd say, uh, at, um, at Sixfields, who's often around the bar and stuff. She's got this amazing... I, can't, I, I shouldn't... I've got to phrase this really well. <laughs> she's got... I could, you could tell what I was going to say. Um, she's got a, a jacket with beaver written on the back. So it's a 1980s, I should have, yeah, it must be 80s. Oh, wow. Cobbler's jacket, and it's like proper vintage, mm. and that is really rare. So I reckon we've got to get you to uh, <laughs> have a chat with her, see if you can. I'll have a go yeah. on a beaver. I'll go for it. And that, that's oh, no. it. <laughs> I love, I love, I love my football that, shirts. But I, don't, I don't know what you're saying. I love my football right. shirts, but I, to be honest, you know, I've got training shirts, I've got training jackets, top. I love a, a, a club jacket. They, and to be honest, they tend to go for more online because they're more rare. But you can get, yeah, you can't wear like a spicy football shirt to work all the time and stuff. But you can get away with a really nice coat, a little bit more understated. I've got a couple, I've got one from the centenary year, which is quite nice. But I would love to see her beaver one. 
Okay, I'll, I'll introduce you at six fields. Point out of even next time. I will do, mate. Uh, yeah, so tell us this uh, Sean Dyke story. It sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, well, you, you've, you've been asking about um, for a while if, if I could relay any um, kind of music industry stories on, on the podcast, but I'm, I'm not sure. I can't, you know, keep names and facts and figures in and stuff, or I'd, I'd be fired or, or get someone arrested most of the time. But um, I do, I do. I, so I have a, a signed Sean Dyche photo on my desk at work, which has a good story behind it. And that's been quite the envy of, you know, artists of the people from labels and stuff that comes to my desk. Because a lot of people have like, we have photos of us with like presenting discs to artists, all these famous people at awards and the Brits and stuff like that. And then you come around to my desk and I've got signed Sean Dyche and everybody always finds that quite funny. But um, I don't know if ever, uh, anyone's ever been, well, obviously everyone's been down the, the Welly Road for a night out, but there's a pub down there called The Old House, um, which I don't know if any yeah. of you have ever been to before. But um, I'd just come back from from a trip, like, you know, I've just been out to America, flying around, meeting all these artists. And I come back to, to blow off some steam, had quite a few shandies by this point, And I, I saw Sean Dyche in there because he obviously still lives in and around Northampton. Um, and me being in my very inebriated state, I said, Look, I've got to go get a photo with him. This is a couple of years ago. So we still obviously manage at Burnley. Um, and as I go over, I'm steaming by this point, And I ask him if I can have a photo. And he goes, yeah, yeah, sure, mate. Yeah, yeah, sure, mate. It's fine. <laughs> and as he as we're kind of like arranging ourselves and I go to hand my phone to his mate I kind of squint for a second and stop I'm really pissed but I'm pretty sure that he stood there in the old house with Dale Winton of Supermarket Sweep <laughs> the Dale Winton and I kind of stood and stared at him and was like <laughs> what and then the guy said do you know who I am and Sean was like do you know who I am and I was like yeah, you're Dale Winton. He was like, "Do you want me in the photo?" And I was like, "You're kidding me, Dale like, Winton no, with I'm, Sean Dyche." I was like, "No, I'm right. I just kind of want the photo with Sean." And they all laughed. And I was like, "This is a bit weird." But then I was so drunk. I was like, "Am I seeing this wrong? Is this really Dale Winton?" He, he took the photo. And then obviously, I've come. I've woken up with thinking a hangover the next day. But I'm sending this all around my mates, and I'm like, "Do you know who took that photo?" And they're like, "Who?" And I'm like, "I swear to God, Dale Winton took that photo." Anyway, so a couple of years go by. And then, uh, obviously, I met my girlfriend in London, and her her dad is a Reading season ticket holder and the biggest football like autograph collector, football memorabilia collector you will ever meet in your life. Like, absolute, like goes to the, the grounds at 11 a.m. and waits outside the coaches and stuff, and he knows a lot of the managers and and stuff from his job. And he was actually he I told him that story, and he could not let it go. He just refused to believe that Dale Winton was in a pub in Northampton with Sean Dyche. So he actually ended, he got invited to the LMAs through work. Um, that like a year later or so and he stood there at the end of the night having a pint with Sean Dyche and he goes look I've got to ask you my uh, my daughter's boyfriend he's adamant he has this story about how he met you in Northampton and and he had a photo with you and Dale Winton and Sean Dyche apparently like burst out laughing like and he was like do you know what I actually even think I remember him he was like one of my best mates who I see whenever I go back home to Northampton is the literal spit image of Dale Winton, and your 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 daughter's boyfriend's come up to him. We could tell he was so drunk. We just all looked at each other, and when he was staring at him, we even joked and calling Dale. We were like, "Fuck it, let's see if like how far we can take it." And we convinced him that it was Dale Winton when it's just my mate that looks like Dale Winton. And he was like, "You know, he's been going around for years and telling people that he had a photo of Sean Dyche and Dale Winton. Dale Winton's probably heard this now." 
And so, uh, so anyway, he signed um, a napkin for me that said to Brendan, sorry, it wasn't Dale or something like that from Sean Dyche. And then um, my girlfriend's dad put that together with a photo and put it in a frame for me and gave it me for Christmas. So, so when people come around to my desk at work, it's not photos of me with Lewis Capaldi or Sam Smith or at the Brit Awards or anything. It's a signed photo of Sean Dyche that apologises that Dale Winton wasn't there. So yeah, everybody loves that one at work. And um, <laughs> people come around and ask to have a look at it all the time. And uh, yeah, like I said, I've seen him at the, seen him at the club and um, saw him last year at the uh, Chippenham game. Not Chippenham game, who was it we got? Notts County, was it, in the FA Cup? And he came on Burnley the weekend off. And yeah, we always have a laugh about it now. But um, yeah, that's that's my experience with Sean Dyche and not Dale Winton. <laughs> what a brilliant story! Brilliant. That's one. That's one to tell the grandkids. <laughs> you know that. You know that. What what could be true though? That actually that? was Dale Winton, and 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 Sean Dyche doesn't want his tough guy people this in the football industry to realise that he drinks with Dale Winton or drank. It with was Dale just Winton. a bluff the whole time. I I spent years trying yeah. to figure out. Because obviously Sean, I think Sean Dyche lives in Cywell or Overston, doesn't he? He still lives down that way. I was trying to figure out, like we were the other week when we were figuring out where um, that EastEnders lot and all that lot live in Northampton. I was like, does Dale Winton live in Northampton? Does he, <laughs> does he live in Cywell as well? But sadly not to be. Yeah, I'm smelling a, a rat there. I reckon it actually was Dale Winton. Just Sean, just <laughs> You're going to spread a counter rumour now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that's, that's brilliant. It's, you know, we know you can't really tell us a lot of stories about the record industry. Something will fall out. Um, I'm sure uh, when we can all, which hopefully is not in the too distant future, and we all can get together at a pub after a game or something, I'm sure something will will come out that that seems suitable. But I'm just not too sure <laughs> right now. <laughs> Spot on, mate. That's a very good story. Um, Jeff, how are you getting on, buddy? Are you uh, got any uh, football moments of the week for us? I'm all right. I've got um, I've got two football moments of the week. Um, okay. both very short though and I've also got a very quick Sean Dyche anecdote once we were um, we were at Sixfields waiting to interview Dyche after a game um, at the tunnel um, and he came out with Max Dyche who is obviously he's at the co- he's at the club now isn't he he's an academy yeah. player I think he was actually on the bench of the first team a while ago um, but at the time Max Dyche was about four or five something like that and Sean Dyche to buy himself some time to do this interview um, without his kids sort of bothering him he brought a ball out with him and he booted it right the way over to the other side of the pitch and he went to Max fucking fetch that and the kid went running after him and uh, yeah so he had, a, he had a plenty of time this little toddler went or whatever went running across the pitch after the ball um, <laughs> yeah. um, no, not quite not, no Dale Winton no way to say that Dale was even supermarket sweeper at that time so he quite possibly yeah um, so two brilliant football, one one brilliant football moment of the week for me and one other person in this podcast and probably nobody else in the world is that Ian and I had the group email this week that Five Aside is coming back on Monday. So that's great news because uh, we're badly missing that. Uh, oh, and yeah. my my actual football moment of the week relates to the Cobblers and to um, Joey Barton's interview after the game. Uh, the other night, where he, he was full of praise for the Cobblers. He actually used the word superb. Uh, he said he thought they were superb, um, in the, but, you know, they do what they sort of, you know, a few backhanded compliments in there, you know, very good at what they do and that sort of thing. But I just thought that was quite refreshing. Obviously, as regular listeners of this podcast know, I did the, I covered the club for about 10 years, probably about 500 games. So I've probably interviewed 500 opposing managers. 
and very, very rarely will they give the other club any credit, they give the cobblers, the other team, any credit because a lot of the time they're trying, it's survival. They're trying to make themselves and their players appear better than they are because in League Two, League One, you're never really that far away from getting fired. So, it's, yeah, I just thought that was quite refreshing that a manager would come out and say that. Whether whether we were actually superb is a, a, a matter for great debate. Uh, probably weren't technically <laughs> superb, but yeah, I just thought that was that was really really interesting that he he would say that because as well as that, he's someone who is considered like a pantomime villain, isn't he, Joe Barton? So um, yeah, that was, that was that was quite good. I thought that. Yeah, I like that as well. Maybe because maybe it has a sort of a double effect in that the the players will read it and think, well, hang on a second, we need to. We need to get the focus back on us a little bit, and you know we didn't do enough to break Cobblers down because I thought Cobblers were there not for the taking, but it just needed Fleetwood to just a little bit of magic from him. They just, just didn't do it all night. Same with MK. We just were really hard to break down. But yeah, fair play to Joey Barr, and I quite like him despite the stuff he's yeah, done. I, I just do, think yeah. there's something about him, isn't there? He's got something about yeah. him. A little interlude now. I sent questions regarding the Cobblers training on the pitch at Sixfield, the state of the training facilities at Moulton, and some questions on the Sixfield development to James Whiting, the NTFC chief executive this week. He responded to them all to his credit. He answered some of them well, in my opinion, some less so, but you'll have to make your own mind up on that. We'll be discussing it more on NQNTFC Twitter and my personal Cobblers account at Tom Reed NTFC in the coming days, but I'll read the questions and responses out now. This is a first question from me, and then you'll hear the responses from James Whiting as it makes sense in response. Do you think it's healthy that Cobblers are currently training on the Sixfields pitch, despite moving pitches already at Moulton? To which James Whiting responded, As covered in the original document, this is a result of a set of circumstances, some of which have been out of our control. It's important to remember that this is not a normal season. It's incredibly condensed with two games per week, pretty much every week. Therefore, the amount of long technical training sessions is reduced, with the focus now being on recovery and match preparation. Is it the best option at present, taking account of many of those factors, including biosecurity? Yes. Therefore, we are comfortable with the current plan. Why specifically were you looking at other sites for training grounds? Where were they and why did you not proceed with them? James Whiting responded. Over recent years, we've explored the possibility of numerous sites. We want the academy and first team training on one site and there are certain facility requirements for the academy to maintain our academy category three status. Having reviewed many sites currently, Moulton College is still the best option. With access to four pitches with exclusive exclusivity and maintenance provided by the club ground staff, plus access to a 3G gyms and classrooms for the academy and a location to house buildings to create a professional environment for the first team, it provides the facilities needed. How long roughly were Keith and the team training on the Sixfields pitch before the lockdown in March? It's been well documented since Keith came to the club that while the existing two first team pitches at Moulton provided a good training surface, he did not feel the exposed nature of those pitches would provided the ideal environment for the first team to train. Therefore, from that point, training has been split between Moulton and the stadium. Why did the club management not wait until the new pitches and buildings at Moulton were ready before switching? Can you explain the rationale of moving on to pitches which you have said required significant work to bring them into play? The answer to the previous questions explains the rationale and Improving facilities takes time. The purpose of training is to give yourselves the best possible chance to be successful and develop players. Having climbed some 30 league positions and sold on a player for a record club fee since Keith and his staff came to the club, I think the decisions made around where and when to train to date have been sound. 
question for myself. Hand on heart, which managers, including Keith Carroll, Dean Austin, Jimmy Floyd, Hasselbank, Rob Page, and Chris Wilder, are were happy with the facilities location of Moulton and saw them as a base to kick the club on? Whiting responded, During Chris Wilder's season, we would train on different pitches each week, including, as I think is well known, often doing final match prep and set pieces on the park on a Friday. One of the immediate goals of the new owners upon takeover was a better training facility, which led to the increased investment and involvement at Moulton College. In time for season 2016-17, we scored two exclusive pitches at Moulton College with use of facilities housed within the Chris Moody Centre. This included daily access to a swimming pool and cryotherapy chambers, facilities not many clubs at our level have access to. The previous managers were happy at different levels with the facilities, which would you would expect when it comes to personal choices. Why was Keith Carl said to be pleased and delighted by the Northampton Chronicle Echo with the new pitches at Moulton in 2019? And why did he say they were fantastic and ready, yet is now training on the main pitch at Sixfields? To which James Whiting responded, The two pitches identified for use for the first team, rather than the open and exposed pitches, are a very sheltered and quiet part of the college, which would be more conducive to the environment Keith wants, less exposed to the elements and with no passing students. These pitches had been unused for two years and needed significant works to bring them up to the standard required. The club's ground staff set about bringing these into play for the start of the 2019-20 season. I note the article you have referenced was in late June 2019, when the players would have only just returned for pre-season and doing the fitness work that is initially completed. In pre-season, following the article, we did encounter challenges with the pitch, with them not quite playing as had been hoped and needed more work to get the surface consistent. This work was ongoing in late 2019 and after further investigation, planning and discussion, including with Moulton College, we moved to the plan of completely, of completing more comprehensive improvements to the drainage and irrigation systems for these pitches planned for spring 2020, along with the buildings so that we would have everything completed for the start of pre-season ahead of the 2020-21 season. As covered previously, COVID changed a lot of things around the world. At this time, and all works planned by the club and Moulton were placed on hold for obvious reasons. What specifically is Keith unhappy with about Moulton? Is he confident the pitches will be of sufficient quality? James Whiting responded, covered above. Cobblers appear never to have had a club-owned permanent training facility during its 100-plus year history. Do you think a lack of investment in such facilities has hampered the club's progression? Whiting responds, I think we can only speculate on this. I don't think ownership is a key here. It's about control. Take Burton Albion, who have access for many years trained at St George's Park. Clearly, they have access to some of the best training facilities in the country, but they don't own them. You'll also find that numerous other clubs also use training facilities that they do not own. An example being AFC Wimbledon, who have also trained at a local education facility that they don't own for years. What the club, any club, needs is control and the security over training facilities that provide an environment to allow the football department and academy to develop and be successful. As stated in the original document, we had a plan to deliver this with a long-term agreement with Moulton, but clearly COVID has put this on hold. Our focus at this time has to be on the short, medium and long-term financial stability of the club, but we remain in conversation with Moulton and will adjust as circumstances allow. Do you think it was healthy for Cobblers to be having to alter their style of play at Sixfields because of the state of the pitch, as was reported by the Cron? Writing responds, We had a great win on Tuesday night against a team that qualified for the playoffs last season and are expected to be right up there again this season, so I'd say yes. In all seriousness, I don't think we have materially changed the underlying principles of how we play. It's normal for clubs to have different approaches at home and away from from game to game as Keith and his staff try to find a way to set up in each game and try to get a win. 
My question, have you investigated the large piece of land behind the East Stand for a training pitch or pitches, all community football pitches that can be hired out? Will you consider that? Whiting responded, as we all know, the land is not prime land and the leases for the land require the land would require the land to be remediated at a cost that is likely to run into millions. Plus the levels are not conducive to flat pitches and to level the surfaces would generate another very significant cost. Therefore, it has been considered at length and no, con not considered a viable option. Will you consider a more open discussion over the training facilities and other bricks and mortar infrastructure of the football club with the key groups, including coaching, playing staff, groundsmen, club and supporters trust with feedback to the fan base? Whiting responds, Obviously, we have regular discussions with the coaching staff, academy staff and groundsmen about anything to do with training facilities. Also, what has obviously been difficult with COVID this year, we have regular open forums and fan panel meetings where we are always happy to have discussions with supporters on any matter concerning the football club. Plus, we have the open dialogue with the trust on this matter when they approach us for comment and I'm answering your questions now. My question, do you hand on heart think the cobblers need their own training ground? In an ideal world, of course, any club would want to have ownership of its own training facilities that are of the highest standard possible. While it doesn't necessarily translate to success on the pitch, clearly you would want that in an ideal world. But while always striving to take us forward in all aspects of the club, we have to deal with the reality of where we are as a club, what's achievable, budgets, and not placing the club into unmanageable debt that puts the long-term survival of the club at risk. 2020 has been a reminder of that more than anything. What year did Cobblers start training at Moulton? The academy have been based at Moulton for many years, as stated above, while the club had previously had times when they trained at Moulton College. It was really in 2016 when we secured exclusive access to pitches along with control for the club's ground staff to maintain them. How many pitches will, we be, will be available at Moulton in the short term? The answer is two. Were the previous pitches at Moulton of a suitable standard in terms of pitch quality? Whiting's answer, yes, working with Moulton Significant draining work was completed in 2016 to bring these to a good standard. These now provide excellent year-round training and match pitches for under-16s and under-18s. Question. Was money spent to improve the previous pitches at Malton, and if so, how much in a ballpark figure? Whiten responds. As above, money is spent on the pitches on an ongoing basis to improve and renovate pitches. We also get independent pitch reports and soil samples done to improve the decision-making around maintenance and renovation programmes. I'm not sure it is overly appropriate or required to give amounts as these are obviously negotiated terms with outside contractors. Question. Is it sensible to consider spending several hundred thousand pounds on a facility the club doesn't own? Whiting's up. Response. The plan when we were able to complete it will give us facilities for the first team and academy that are excellent. I believe the investment required of several hundred thousand pounds is sensible with the security of a long-term agreement compared to millions of pounds that would be required to replicate these facilities with ownership. Especially, especially on the basis the buildings would be modular with a long lifespan. If ever needed, they could be moved to an alternative location. Question, what are the standard of the first team pitches at Moulton currently? Is the soil base ideal for football pitches? Does it drain well? Response from Whiting. Keith has, of course, been on record recently to state that currently the pitches are not quite at the level he would like. And the reasons for that, I believe, we covered at length in my original document, so I will not go over them again. Next question. Are you confident the remedial work will result in pitches of a decent standard for a League One club with aspirations of the championship? Whiting's response is yes. The next question. What is okay about the pitches the youth teams played on but were deemed unsuitable by the first team and vacated? Whiting responds. Covered above and by Keith in the press, it's the exposed nature rather than the surfaces themselves. Next question. 
Does Molten provide the requisite privacy, security, exclusivity, and all-round usage control for a League One football club with championship aspirations? Whiteham responds, As stated above, the new first-team pitches are in a far corner of the college and extremely private. The club's ground staff have control of the maintenance of the pitches. Next question. How many players currently commute roughly from outside Northampton to training? Does the location of Moulton add time to the commute? If so, might there be an impact on health, fitness or recovery? Whiting's response. We actually have more players located north and therefore Moulton is closer to them than the stadium is. In any case, most of the players who are not local have accommodation to reduce the travelling they do. This is a key part of contract talks with players and something we monitor closely. Next question. Do you think Moulton is a right geographical location for a Northampton Town training facility? Whiting's response is, a quiet countryside location just 15 minutes from the stadium. I would think it's perfect in terms of geographical location. Next question, more general uh, regarding the Six Hills redevelopment. Does a club's financier, David Bauer, have a plan for the next five to ten years in terms of football operations and facilities? If so, can you share it? Whiting's response Calvin stated in his first ever forum shortly after taking over, there would be no five-year plans and that view remains with David and him. There aren't many five-year, ten, five to ten-year plans in football that survive. They often aren't worth the paper they are written on and quickly become outdated. We operate in a fast-moving and ever-changing industry that is more short-term focused than many businesses by its nature. But what David and Calvin have done from day one is provide the club with the finance and investment that it has needed to be competitive on the pitch by backing the managers extremely well and to support our development and growth on and off the pitch. You only have to look at the challenges of this year and the fact that we're in good shape to survive is testament to that. Next question. When do you plan to next update fans and the public on the progress of the redevelopment of the East Stand and any associated land deal, please? Whiting's answer. Despite the obvious challenges of COVID clearly dominating at present, we have also been pushing extremely hard to make progress on this matter. As has been well documented, we have been meeting with the supporters trust on this too and continue to update them. Updates from the club will follow when there's something significant to update. Next question. How many seats will be added to Sixfield's original capacity when the East Stand is finished as to your plans? Whiting's response. I think this has been covered previously and it is well known that while there will be an increase in capacity, it will only be small. Final question. Will the East Stand, if completed to the Cardoza-initiated designs, be able to be expanded in terms of capacity fairly simply? Whiting's response. What has been important to us in all of our discussion has been to ensure that any development leaves a club footprint with sufficient room to grow and extend as required. So there's James Whiting's responses. Um, as I said, I think he's answered some of them pretty well, some of them less well, and we'll discuss it in the days ahead, but there's his responses and thanks for him to of taking his time to to answer them we'll move on now all right then let's move on to saturday's game versus doncaster rovers i'm pleased to be joined by donny rovers writer for the sheffield star and donny free press it's liam hoden how you doing liam you okay not too bad not too bad yourself yeah not too bad just looking forward to the game on saturday there'll be a few fans in six fields which hopefully give us a little bit of home advantage but it's just nice isn't it too you'll be there i guess on saturday with some fans there yeah, I think it's great. It's been it's been so bizarre being it's been an absolute privilege being in being able to go to matches over these last few months. Uh, but fans have been missing massively. Our our, our pilot game where they had there were fans in at Charlton when they played Doncaster, 
uh, around a thousand fans at that point, and it made such a difference. Even in a stadium the size of the Valley, made such a difference. It's going to be great on Saturday just to just to have a few fans in. Sure, I've noticed a lot of the shouting from the benches is actually really loud. And when you're in the game yes. with fans and you don't you don't realise it, but you're hearing all sorts of swear words and just barks from the managers, isn't it? They're really loud. <laughs> really, really. I I think as well, what you, you hear this sort of abuse that referees and officials get that you think yeah. oh that referee they're they're supposed to be stamping this stuff out, but clearly they don't. You're getting an insight into just the amount of uh, abuse that that match officials get. It's, it, it's actually been uh, the one thing that. The one positive about uh, there being no fans in has been that ability to hear what's going on and how much communication has been between players. So that has been an interesting factor this uh, this last couple of months. I guess that can work out negatively as well because you might hear that some managers are actually quite rudimentary in their instructions. Yeah. <laughs> my yeah. dad, uh, my dad, is one of my dad's famous story, family stories is he went to watch um, Northampton versus I don't know who they were playing, but there was I think it was M- Malcolm Musgrave that he was a West Ham player and he was a manager of someone. So my dad's West Ham supporting mate took him a lot away. They went to watch Northampton and he was in the dugout, Malcolm Musgrave, and he went, "We've got to listen to the great Malcolm Musgrave and hear what he's shouting." And apparently, all he shouted was. Run, kick, shoot. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, exposes people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let's um, let's talk a little bit about you know Donny Donny Rovers and Doncaster itself. It's a uh, you know I think it's a fairly sized club. You know, similar sized club to Northampton. Um, could you tell us something about Donny Rovers that fans might not know? Well, the 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 found themselves over the last sort of decade or so really closely tied with uh, Louis Tomlinson of One Direction fame. He's a he's a Doncaster lad, and he were quite closely associated with the club. He actually signed for one season, so his name was on the back of the program. He got a squad number. It was all for a charity game, but he trained with the first team squad on a few occasions, and they played this charity game that were bizarre. It attracted a completely different audience to the keep more than what we're used to, but there were thousands and thousands there, raised a, a lot of money. So, yeah, they can count Louis Tomlinson as, as, as a former player, uh, as well as a famous supporter, and almost, at one point, uh, he, he almost bought the club, but that didn't quite go through. <laughs> but can you imagine the temptation of the board to think, should we actually play him? Because if we play him, we will be sold out every week with one direction. <laughs> it was... Good, the, uh, business yeah, the, the the Twitter following exploded overnight and, and even myself covering the club noticed that, that the, the, there would be so many young One Direction fans sort of responding to, to tweets that didn't even have anything to do with Louis. They just knew that Louis loved Doncaster. Uh, and well, I think in that game that he actually played, I think if anybody would have been watching, it would have quickly sort of quashed any ideas that of him uh, actually performing in an actual game because uh, not the greatest football, it's fair to say. <laughs> but he has done a lot of good stuff for the club, and he seems a genuine fan and just a down-to-earth sort of lad. Really, doesn't really seem too arrogant for a pop star. No, not all, not all, and it's it, it was always good for. A chat when when you saw him after a game um, and and things like that. He were, were quite close with uh, with Paul Dickov when Paul Dickov was the manager, uh, so you'd see him quite regularly after games coming round for for a chat with Paul. Um, but That's yeah, a, a decent a decent lad, a decent lad. We can't really match that uh, in terms of you know superstar pop stars, but we did have Bauhaus, the uh, seminal goth band in the eighties. That's our <laughs> closest claim to fame with music. Uh, a very good band. Uh, let's move on to. Uh, uh, Doncaster Rovers season so far. I've been looking at some of the results and it just seems to be a bit of a mixed bag. Is that fair to say? 
Yeah, it, it, it's really turning out like that. The way that they started, uh, and, and certainly over the first maybe couple of months of the season, they looked like they were going to be really strong. And I would say even at this point, they've still got that capability of being a really strong side this season. When they're good, they are very, very good. But they're having inconsistent. There's, there's inconsistencies have crept in. Uh, I think the the relentless sort of schedule is is taking its toll. I'm sure it'll take its toll on most teams, but it does seem to be affecting Rovers at the minute. Um, and they really do seem to be having an issue with teams that look to shut them down and stop them from playing. And it's okay. coming when, when that su- succeeds, when opposition teams succeed in that, then Rovers are having real issues trying to fight the way out of that and. Uh, and sort of turn the game on its head. They've been really good when they've done that to other teams, so they've had a fantastic record against the top teams in the division. Uh, they've beaten uh, Ipswich, Lincoln, Portsmouth, Charlton. They, they got beat on uh, on Wednesday night by Hull City. That's the first time they've, they've lost to one of the one of the top teams, uh, and they were quite disappointing in that game. But the, the potential is there. It's just finding it on a consistent basis and producing it on a consistent basis. Sure, I hadn't really followed, uh, surprise, surprise, Donny too much. It's hard to sort of keep track of all the teams in League One, but that's sort of music to my ears because although I've been a fairly vocal critic of the way style of football we play, I don't, it's not what I want to watch. We, that is exactly what we do. We shut teams down and we did it on Tuesday night. We basically had every man behind the ball most of the game. Uh, Keith Cole was really keen on what he calls closing down, you know, closing holes, nullifying the opposition. That suggests that. You know, it's, it might be a close game, despite you being Donny being higher in the league. That it might be a close call on Saturday, and maybe probably what you didn't want to hear from our end that is that that's what we do. Yeah, that that that's exactly right. Um, that it, it sounds like Donny will be in for for a tough afternoon, given how games mm-hmm. have gone and different teams have tried different things. You've had teams that have have really heavily pressed. And, and had success with that. You've also had teams like when they went down to Wimbledon, they sat off a lot more, but made a really congested, really it made it really congested in the in the Wimbledon half, so it was difficult for Rovers to play through. Rovers aren't going to go direct. They've not got the players to play that. Um, it's all about the quick passing, quick movement of the ball, trying to get the ball into the wide areas, to the wide uh, forwards. Um, and if they don't have the space to do that, then that's where the struggle. So it sounds like Saturday could be a pretty tough afternoon for Donny. Yeah, it depends, I guess, on your perspective. If Keith Gale goes with a back four or back five, on Tuesday he played a back four, which is, I think it was one of the first times he's played that this season. He normally plays a wing-back system, which can leave us open to the counter in behind the wing-backs. And if you've got players that can go out wide, are fairly rapid. Yeah. Our um, centre-back three haven't been that sort of um, consistent this season, but they did really well on Tuesday and uh, sorry, no, but they moved to a back four, but the defence did really well on Tuesday. Very solid. So I think because League One hasn't got many superstar strikers that are, you know, are really going to win games on their own. I think it's a case of whether you've got the forward line or players up front that will be able to unpick us because we will get behind the ball, no doubt. Do you reckon you've got any any strikers or you know attacking midfielders that have the potential to break through our lines? You've got... Josh Sims, who's on loan from uh, Southampton, he's been he's been very good. He played twenty odd games for Southampton. He's just had injury issues, and it's meant that he's he's kind of struggled to uh, to sort of stake a claim. And he's just trying to find himself at the minute. He's absolutely rapid, really confident, and direct running with the ball. 
he's the type of player that that can lock and uh, unlock a defense or get behind him and get a, a ball into the box. Um, you, the Rovers tend to play with with a single striker. Recently, that's been Fahiri Okunabiri, who people might be more familiar with from his time with Shrewsbury Town, because um, they've had Tyrese John Jules, uh, who's on loan from Arsenal. He's been out injured. He's just coming back. He actually scored last night against uh, Hull, um, and and he looks he. John Jules looks more capable of sort of unlocking a defence where Okunabiri is all about sort of holding the ball up and bringing others into play and, and taking advantage of any chances that might fall to him in, in the box. So it'll be tough. And, and that that is where they've fallen short. If if there's a congested defence, uh, a defence that an opposition team that gets plenty of men behind the ball, Rovers have had a real problem unlocking that. So it, it could be a difficult task. Yeah, on Tuesday, the Fleetwood, it was like I sort of felt for um, Joey Button for a little bit, you know, as much as you do for an opposition manager, because they were trying to play football, what I call the right way, keep yeah. possession, you know, good passing and everything. But we were just literally parking the bus. It was almost like an England San Marino game, you know, that sort of thing. And I was also sort of almost thinking, you know, what they should do to unlock us is actually give us a ball. Because when we get the ball, we have to get up the pitch. And when we get up the pitch, then the, the gaps appear. But we're more than competitive just to fall behind the ball and it's you know it's nerve-wracking as a cobbler's fan to watch because we scored a goal from a set piece which we'll go into in a second but defending for that long it's just like whoa you're just wondering where then you know the goals come this one goal or like two will come but I guess that leads me on to the defense of set pieces are you any good at like defending corners and free kicks and stuff because that's our stocking trade that's our that's our real real strength they're not they're not too bad they're not too bad at it they've got a really strong defense they, they do seem yeah. to deal with sort of open play better than than what they do from set pieces and they've looked a, they have looked a little bit vulnerable at times from uh, from set pieces um but i wouldn't say it's a major major weakness at the minute so what would you say donny's strengths are then if if ours is sort of set pieces and trying to keep it tight what would you say donny's strengths are it the if they're given the opportunity, they're very good at dominating the ball, dominating possession. Uh, they're yeah. really patient in how they play, uh, yeah. and they'll happily keep it at the back and pass it around, and and just wait and wait for opportunities to open up. It, it's just been on occasions that well, often you see this when a team comes up against another one that's that's just sat behind the ball. It almost feels like the team with but the ball have then got to uh, act quickly and they, that's where they kind yeah. of fall apart a little bit when they rush it a little bit but yeah. when um w- when they have that opportunity and that space to play the, the sort of short snappy passes and, and build play up quickly they are very good if they get into the stride with that they are really good that's where the strengths lie it sounds almost similar a little bit to um MK Don's boo that we don't really like around here, but Melbourne yeah. Keynes, I think they were up to like 75% possession. We're often yeah. at about 30, 30, 40% possession because Keith Carr doesn't care about possession. He cares mm. about, you know, getting into the right areas and stuff like that. So it, it, it seems like to me, a lot of it will boil down to if we do park the bus, whether you can you literally unlock us and have that quality to take your chances that we, you know, will present to you here and there. And I think, yeah, again, we'll be, Straight, like very strong at corners we're really good at those sort of set pieces so we'll see how it goes I guess um let's talk about Darren Moore the manager who he seems like a, a good guy and it's really great to see a manager from the BAME community doing so well how would you sum up the job he's doing at the moment I think he's doing a very good job he, he is a he is a lovely lovely man he's, he's yeah 
you know, it it is great with us, but he's, he's great with everybody. He's just he's got time for everybody, but a really genuine man, and everybody speaks so highly of him that that's had any contact or any sort of relationship with him. But he is doing a fantastic job. He's working with a, a small squad, and he's put a lot of focus in young players, um, and he's brought he's used kind of the the contacts that he made when he was at West Brom coming through the sort of the, the U team ranks. And managing them, and he was loans manager before he obviously stepped up and and took charge of West Brom. He's got a lot of contacts in in the sort of under twenty, uh, the academy sphere and the under twenty three sphere uh, of clubs, and then he's pulled in a lot of really good loanees, um, high caliber loanees, and and he, he sees his role in developing these players, making them better, and uh, and hopefully bringing success to uh, to Doncaster while they're here, uh, as well as developing younger, it's a, it's a young squad anyway with permanent signing. So it's con- it's all about constant improvement. He always says he might, he might be happy at a certain point, but he's never fully satisfied. That's one of his, his, his stock phrases. And that is it. It's that constant drive for improvement. And, and it's fair to say that he has done that. It was tough when he came in uh, last summer. Rovers had reached the, the, the playoff semi-finals. That team had kind of been picked apart a little bit. Grant McCann moved on to Hull City, and there were a lot of rebuilding to do. And he and he did a decent job. They were ninth when the um, when the season was ended, and had a had a chance, a, a realistic shot, a, a, a pushing right to the end to to make it into the top six. And it feels like this season is is a progression on that. There's obviously the challenges of this season, the the congested uh, fixture list that I, that I've already mentioned, but they the do feel it. Rovers feel stronger, and the caliber of player that he's been able to bring in this year seems to have have, have increased. So, it's it he's doing a decent job. It's one of those. I think even when he arrived, given the reputation that he had after that spell at West Brom, where a lot of people were were shocked that he got the sack at West Brom, um, his standing in the game, his reputation. I think people knew that this or expected that this wasn't going to be the longest-term appointment. He weren't going to be here forever because somebody inevitably were going to snap him up. And I think that it still feels, even coming up to 18 months on, it still feels like that that is... If he has a de- another decent season at Rovers, that the time, time's running out on his time here because somebody will inevitably snap him up at some point uh, from a higher level. That's the problem with managerial coups like that because he managed in the Premier League so really yeah. you know looking at the grand, grand scheme of things pretty much lucky to have him but hopefully from your perspective he'll get a move eventually by having success at Doncaster so mm-hmm. we'll see what happens it just seems to me like he is a manager who you can sort of trust to get on with it that you know he's uh, like you said he's 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 good around the club and he's, he's very respective so you know he's a, he's a safe you know safe pair of hands where you know, I'm not sure about your managerial turnover, but in Northampton we've had loads, and I think a lot of Cobblers fans are just, even though Keith Cole's football isn't easy on the eye, they just want a bit of stability now, just to keep him in, even if you know, no matter how results go, just try and keep someone in. Do you think that sort of stability is important? I, I think it is. Uh, what what over the last few years, Rovers have had that for the last five five or six years. Darren yeah. Ferguson, um, he completely. It was almost like a reset uh, of Rovers, despite the fact they got relegated to League Two during his first season in charge. They came straight back up, but it cleared the decks um, and and, and professionalised everything from from top to bottom 
um, and then he, he chose to, to to leave, and then Grant McCann came in and, and progressed. That. And it feels like that they've had good, they've had managers with with ambition, but ambition to to really improve the club from top to bottom, and they've kicked on and, and done that. The, the 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 issue has been that the ambition of the managers. In, in terms of Darren Ferguson and Grant McCann, took them away from the club in the end. That's where the, the lack of stability has come in. But I think yeah. that in terms of the right sort of characters, they're, they're doing a good job and they certainly have done over the last five years or so in, in picking out the right sort of characters for the club who will bring that stability, bring that calm head and uh, and that sort of drive for, for improvement. Yeah, that seems a sort of a sensible way to go about things. Um, Darren Moore's tactics, let's not go into them too deeply, but did he have any go-to formations? What sort of line, sort of setup is he likely to have on Saturday at Northampton? It's it's likely to be a, a 4-2-3-1. Um, yeah. Although the, the two and the three are, are very fluid. So you might end up with a 4-1-4-1. You know, you might be a 4-3-3 almost. It, it, it's, it moves around a lot. That's what that sort of short, sharp passing relies on the movement and, and you'll get people dropping into different positions and covering different positions and things like that. So but the base of it is a is a four two three one. Um Ben Whiteman the captain he will sit in the in the two wheel deck or, or even if it goes down to a one he'll he'll be the sitting player. He's essential to everything. Not so much a blocker in, in that position, but more of a guy that's going to start the the attacks is going to receive the ball out from the back and look to move the ball up the pitch quickly and bring the wide players into play or get a bit of get some passing triangles going and things like that. So that's what it's all about, really. That base being that four two three one. Sure, I think if any Donny Rovers fans listening to this podcast when it's published that four two three one is probably I would say the best formation to go up against Northampton with, especially if you can get any rapid players to carry that ball up in behind our wing backs or our full backs, whatever we play. That's where our danger is. And when you when you do that, the the back three or back two, whatever, they get pulled out of position and they're not always the steadiest. So that would be the route in if I was, you know, looking at, at it from the opposition perspective. Um what would you say the season expectations are for for Doncaster? Obviously it's been a bit of a mixed bag, but well positioned, you know, to go into the new year, pushing from promotion. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, the base expectation that's set is that they have a challenge for the top six. It's not necessarily we want a top six finish. It's that the challenge for it. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that'll be the, the the same thing again. And I think with what we've seen on the positive side of the things from from Rovers, there's nothing to suggest that that's not possible. They just need to find that consistency that I spoke about. Um, but certainly, they'd be, they'd be very disappointed if they didn't get a top-half finish. And it'd be good if, sort of come March and, and April, that they're still very much in that mix for, for a top-six place. Yeah, most people I speak to are concerned about, you know, trying to keep things consistent and get trying to get some results together. But it's so difficult with this COVID period, isn't it, to try and get anything going at all. And... I think to be placed where you are isn't too bad. There's probably some teams slightly behind you that want to sort of kick up a little bit, kick on in the league. And it will sort of start to emerge, I reckon, after this really busy period going into January. And, you know, you're going to hope that you're up there. And we're, we're really just hoping to stay up, really. That is our, our main expectations. The budget's been cut quite a lot. And um, we're up, you know. But if we finish the season where we are now, I think we're about 14th or something. Mm. Um, if we finish the season where we are now, we'd all, all be quite happy. But it just depends 
with Keith Carroll's game management if he can continue to park the bus because how sustainable is that or is he going to sort of go for broke a little bit in certain games and he we just really need to manage the season and try and stay in it so we'll see how that goes um let's have a score prediction then for Saturday it's difficult one to call but you know uh, I'll put you uh, put your neck on the block I'd like to think that that Doncaster can get back on track a little bit and 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 go get one. I'm I'm slightly concerned about the the ability to break Northampton down, but I'm going to be yeah. positive from a Rovers perspective, and I'm going to say two one away win. Okay, that sounds reasonable. I was actually thinking that myself. Um, I'm top of the prediction league, so I've got a lot of pressure on my shoulders here. So I need to <laughs> I need to come up with something. Um, yeah, so two one is perfectly reasonable suggestion. Uh, to us as well, wouldn't surprise me two one, but I just think. Looking at it, cobblers are pretty good from set pieces and we all seem to snatch a goal. Then I can just sort of see you scoring and then maybe cobblers trying to push on again. So I'm going to go 2-2 two, two draw. I never really do that sort of thing, a high-scoring draw, but i just got a feeling. We'll see on Saturday, obviously. But um, yeah, I guess we'd probably, be, probably take a draw because of the difference in the league table and stuff and you're a team with a little bit of potential. So we'll take a draw. But are you going to the game to cover the match yes. on Saturday? Yes, I will be there Saturday. At Sun Sixfields. <laughs> <laughs> it's an all right ground. Yeah. What's the capacity of your ground? You haven't got a bad ground, have you, up there? 15,000 around, about. Yeah. Yeah. What sort of seats would you get if it was not like a normal time? You're talking anywhere between six and a half and, and eight and a half. Um, sort of average. Obviously, it can go up massively depending on what, like Sunderland come, they'd probably bring four or five thousand and they'd open all that end up for them. So you can get really high attendances in it, but sort of between between six and eight, you would say uh, as an average. That's cool. It'd be nice to sort of get around to some more games. Hopefully, in the new year, if things open up, get a few more. Maybe get away fans to you know at some point. Hopefully, it's a bit, a bit yeah. sort of forlorn hope at the moment. We'll we'll see with that one. And it is going to be nice to have fans back in stadium on Saturday I was speaking earlier on the podcast that Will Northampton have a bit more home advantage because we know Donny Rovers fans in there and Keith Carl's got a very loud voice himself so I'm sure there'll be you know the cobblers within masks probably cheering on a little bit besides that that'd be interesting to see if it pans out but thanks for talking to me and um, we'll chew the fat again soon thanks a lot yeah no problem no problem at all so let's move on to the cobblers A to Z actually it's um we're rolling through it now we're on to l okay we'll go to you first andy with your l yeah another blast from the past um a lad that joined the the club mid 90s um i believe ian atkinson ian atkinson ian atkins um he actually referred to christian lee as uh, potentially our first million pound player which uh, i mean ian atkins didn't get a lot wrong in his time at the club um, but he was a little bit, a little bit wider the mark with that one. I think, I think Christian Lee played four seasons mainly, mainly as a bit of a super sub who wasn't even that super. Um, Sixty games over four years, sort of seven or eight goals, and um, would probably have, have drifted into sort of obscurity, even with me personally. But he, he really looked like um, someone I went to university with, and <laughs> and, and and that person was a girl. <laughs> Does she have that short Louis Lena type haircut that he had? <laughs> I always felt Christian Lee beautiful man, obviously. And uh, <laughs> you know, do, look, looking him up early, went on to be um, 
one of the faces of uh, fashion brand Giordano, no less. <laughs> oh, but I've do. always felt he had um, he had sort of quite quite nicely soft androgynous features. <laughs> Almost I mean, that, that, like confusing confusing feelings. So you saw this girl and you, you you could combine your two loves. Yeah, I didn't find him attractive. <laughs> it was just confusing. Cobblers and yeah, and women. You could just just fill your boots, mate. <laughs> Jeff, um, yeah. what was it about Christian Lee that? Ian Atkins ever thought that it would be worth £1 million because I'm still struggling with that one. I don't know. It was quite... Um, it wasn't really like a um, an Ian Atkins player, was he? Because he was quite no. He's quite a technical player and he wasn't like the other strikers that he'd brought in um, which were sort of um, much... I mean, someone like John Gale was the complete opposite <laughs> of him. Even though they were both probably the same height. Um, uh, yeah. Christian Lee was like... Uh, a very, a very, very poor man's, a, a destitute homeless man's Teddy Sheringham, if you like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And um, yeah, I, t- I don't really know what where that one million potential, you know, just because he was a young lad that he got in. I suppose every other player exactly. Had, like, and he probably, he probably didn't. He probably just did as he was told. Yeah, I think, I think, I, I think Atkins liked that. I mean, Christian Lee actually played in that ninety-seven yeah, playoff final. Yeah, pretty much in the Sheringham role. As um, I yeah, reckon, uh, as, as Christian said. Lee had one good. Christian Lee had one good training session under Ian Atkins. He did something amazing, you know, maybe uh, like a Johan Cruyff or something. He did like an amazing bit of skill in in training. They went over to the TGI Fridays, had a couple of post match beers. Ian Atkins looked at his <laughs> beautiful androgynous features and thought, "This guy <laughs> is the real deal." Went to the Chronicle, had a little interview, and the next day I was thinking, "What have I said?" Well, as I said, because imagine the imagine the stick in an Ian Atkins dressing room that poor Christian Lee took after that. Mr. Oh, yeah. I think there's there's probably a lot of sort of inexplicable um you know instances of you know managers taking a, a strange shine to, to random players. Because whenever mm. I I mean, you know, when you go down sort of watching old um bits of ITV's big match from, from the eighties on YouTube, as as some people do. Um, you know, I always felt this with, with Brian Clough and Trevor Francis, you know, but, but Brian Clough was was pretty much obsessed with Trevor Francis. He mentions him in every commentary, even when the lad's not playing. And I, 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 and I just wondered if there was an Atkins Lee vibe sort of very much in that in that mould there. Just in, 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 inexplicable, but lovely. <laughs> but yeah, really, the, um, the modern day example of that being Mason Mount at um, Frank Lampard or Gareth, Gareth Southgate and Mason Mount. That's probably a fair point. <clears throat> that's a good one, though. To have a, to have a manager that talks up a player like that, because that's that's what that's what Barry Fry has has really you know made a living out of, if you like, at Peterborough, isn't it? Is saying, well, we're only going to sell this player if they give us £10 million. Pound. And, of course, they're not going to, Barry. Um, but um, like That was maybe... honestly like he was on the, in the room, like, in the podcast then. I, could, I couldn't tell the difference. Well, what, he's, he's sat next to me in the living room. Um, <laughs> yeah, but... Jeff's saying pressures are quite good. The best one is definitely Colin Cordwood. We'll save that for another night. Especially <laughs> <time. But she's, laughs> swearing in Scottish. Scottish I, remembered a call, I remembered a Calderwood uh, moment from a, uh, when he was an opposing manager, actually. Uh, it was when he was manager of Forest, and I said, "Can you do uh, it in his accent?" I'll try. I will try. I will try. Okay, everyone, brace yourself. Um, <laughs> there was some chat at the time that he was going to come back to sign Jason Crow from the Cobblers, and I said, "Oh, oh hi, Colin. All right, yeah. Uh, 
this is like after all the locals had all done their bit. I said, uh, some some speculation in Northampton, you're going to come back in f- uh, to take, take Crow here to the city ground. Any anything, any comments make on that? And he went, Crow, I thought he was brilliant in Gladiator. <laughs> and that was it. That's it. And then he did this roguish smile and we all moved on. <laughs> That's a brilliant way of handling it and just batting it away, isn't it? That's yeah. really yeah. Like he was going to tell me anyway, you know, like, but I thought I might as well ask him. Also, again, That's your next podcast idea like, right there. Cut right Calderwood on movies. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna to have to do the whole show in the Colin Collywood uh, accent, or, or Sean Dice. You can do that as well, but that's just basically you just going. Because <laughs> 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 you might start uh, Brendan off, and then Bre- Dale Winton will have to turn off. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's go to let's go to actually yeah let's go to Ian's uh because you said you've got a good one. Ian, I saw one of the tweeters sent us a picture, a photo of um, is it Lloyd Davis. That was an L. Welsh international, him and his brothers all play for Wales. Um, and he was a record breaker because he was the oldest player to play for the Cobblers at 42. So I think that's actually the real reason Jeff's excited to be getting up at goals on uh, Monday night because he's hoping that Keith's going to be watching, doing a bit of the else. <laughs> And I could do with this lad at the back, just just in just keeping things going, especially with his talking, you know, just talking through it. But no, my my L actually isn't. By the way, was that picture, um, that amazing picture you you retweeted it, didn't you, Tom? Yeah, yeah. I, I think Pete Norton took that, didn't he? In nineteen oh eight. It was in nineteen oh nine, yeah, and Pete Norton was I think it was about thirty five at the point. Cub photographer at that time. <laughs> <laughs> My L that is kit actually, is amazing as well, by the way. It is a nice yeah. kit, yeah. It shows as well how little the county ground cha- changed over the years because you can recognise it. Mm. And my my um my choice is 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 that player's manager, right? I say manager. Um, he was, I think he was actually the trainer. It's Fred Lessons, okay. I think he's a little bit before all our time. Maybe maybe even Slugger. Seen as he was born in 1883, I think that outdates <laughs> all of us. But when I, I looked, you can you can guess I looked on um, Cobbler's Pass for this, Ethan Grand, um, great website. Really interesting story, this guy. And also there's parallels for, for the rest of um, like the, the, what followed on in the, in the club's history. Because um, basically, Lessons, he was, he was a player, he was a striker. Um, he played for Forest, moved on to us. Um, that's quite good. It was when, back when we were playing in the Southern League, and when um, it was Herbert Chapman that signed him, and when Herbert Chapman left, do you know why Herbert Chapman left? Does anyone know what club he went to? to Is it something like Leeds Cobb? City or something. It was Leeds no. City. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, did anyone even know there was a Leeds City? And and he wanted yeah. and he went to Leeds City apparently because. He lived in the Sheffield area. What is it with if, with our managers and living in the Sheffield area? They all live in the Sheffield area, don't they? And um, so, like, they needed a replacement. Um, they got a guy in. So everyone's heard of Walter Tull, right? And do you know who the, the, the board got in? Walter Bull. So it's like one left different, <laughs> right? Um, and, yeah, and guess what? He was an ex-Spurs player, just like Terry Fenwick, just like Colin Coldwood, just like Justin Edinburgh. But apparently, and, as well. yeah, and I don't know if this happened at Moulton College, and this is where it all went wrong for Moulton <laughs> College. There was an unsavoury incident on the training ground, apparently, and Walter Bell left the club soon after. So um, 
they actually offered the job to the, the, the guy in the photograph, Lloyd Davis, but now nah, he was he was captain. Uh, he didn't want to. He didn't want to, like you know, become trainer. So um, in the end, yeah, Fred Lessons took up the trainer's job, and um, he, yeah, he basically became full time trainer, stroke manager. Um, he did occasionally fill in at centre half, but uh, sadly, he, he actually died in World War One in France in 1918, aged 34. But um, another thing that interested me about this story as well was like. He said on there he was the trainer because he didn't pick the team. Back then, the club, the, the side was actually picked by the committee, right? So I just, I was just thinking, mm. if we had a committee now, who, who would it be made up of, and 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 who would they pick the team? So obviously, Shotgun. obviously, Shotgun. Gal- well, yeah, the fans. Why not? Like Brian Lomax used to say, absolutely. You know, there should be a trust person on there. Um, Gareth, James, Kelvin, David Bowers. If anyone can contact him he could do it couldn't he from wherever he is Adam Morton he's got to be up there hasn't he Janet in the club shop Oglethorpe yeah Yeah. Wendy in the club shop Wendy Wendy in the club club shop she she should get a pick and also I think 50p Gina's got to be on there and and the other one obviously our sponsors University of Northampton their chancellor their honorary chancellor is Reverend Richard Coles isn't it Um, for pop star turned vicar surely he gets to say (laughs) But can you oh, imagine? The imagine the conversation. This this is a conversation. So, this is Richard Reverend Coles speaking to Fifty P Lil. So what do you think about uh, Harry Smith dropping in? You know, Fifty <laughs> <laughs> P Lil would be my choice definitely. Uh, but yeah, choosing that's my L. Fifty P Lil. <laughs> Dale Winton. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, sad story. Fred Lessons died. Uh, he was in. The, he, he was actually. Um, can't, can't remember his position in the. Uh, but he was in the first battalion, of the Northampton Regiment. And uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, intrigued I'm, intrigued I'm intrigued to know what that unsavoury incident on the training ground. Was. I know. I know. I would love you to know. It involved um, one of the players um, striking a ball that knocked off a gentleman's top hat as he walked around. <laughs> 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 Old um, Edward Lloyd George, he's he's Welsh, obviously, with that name. He's just uh, if everyone looks at the photo, you know, when they get a chance on Twitter, he's just like a footballs are, footballers aren't like that anymore. He's got this like little tash. Got, even Eddie McGoldrick will be pleased with that. There's clearly a cobbler's fan in the background shaking their fist at him, saying how crappy he was. Uh, he's got an amazing, amazing striped share, which I just think is brilliant. And yeah, if they can copy that, I think that'd be really good. But I'm really liking how um, Ian's becoming our resident historian and digging up all this stuff. So yeah, I love it. All from Check it out. It's a great website. The grand family tradition of uh, documenting the club's history lives on. Mm. Yeah, doing a good job yeah, with that. I'll have to rattle through a few of the tweeter ones because there's loads and we'll probably get stuck into a few as we normally do. Um, Jefferson Lake himself tweeted us, Liam Lobjoit, didn't you, Jeff? Um, I can't even yes. pronounce Liam Lobjoit. I don't know he anything about of, him. Yeah, but do you remember he came from somewhere and someone, yeah. someone on this panel will know. as we Buckingham were Town, I think it was. Yeah. Buckingham Town. He scored about 45 goals in 12 games. Yeah, he's going to be my He was just in Edinburgh signed yeah it was. And everyone he, thought this he, is a new big thing yeah it, it kind of had that a little bit that ricky corboa flavor 
or even yeah. like Warbs last season. There's always one, it seems. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know whether it happens at other clubs. There's always one. And it seems to capture the fans' imagination because, mm. like, I know when Leon Lovejoy signed, it was he was honestly playing in, like, the Sunday leagues at one point. But he had some crazy goal tally. Like, it was more than 45 goals. I swear it was close to three figures. It was He was scoring, like, two goals a game. And we were like, mm. you know, we've uncovered some Roy the Rovers gem here. And then my only memory of him playing was um, he got brought on as a sub when we were in the League Cup away at QPR. Because it's the only time I've been to Loftus Road. And, and he, he won it a header at a corner. And it, it just clipped the top of the crossbar. And I was like, oh, there's a player there. I'm pretty sure he never played again. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> it was like one cameo appearance. And I, I made that. I had this judgment that he was like the next big thing up top. You know, and he was going to hold down a place just because I seen him win a header at a corner. Um, yeah, I don't know whatever happened to him. Corbower and Warburton have not obviously made massive impacts, but they've definitely made more of an impression on the first team than poor, poor Leon Lobjoy. Yeah, it's just it's a weird one, isn't it? Because like, if you're scoring, obviously the standards worse down at Buckingham Town or whatever. But if you're really managing to score that many goals and you know, obviously setting a few goals up for yourself. If you're if you're shifted up a few divisions, it might well be that with really you know better service in inverted commas, that you you might might flourish a bit. So it's just it's such a shame when these players are signed and then they don't really get a crack. You're gonna need about 10, yeah. 15 games, aren't you, to hit the ground mm. running and stuff. So he might have. Been I think it's, might, might not have it's been. the approach to it, isn't it? Like I think um, Corboa, to be fair to him, he's talked really well about it in his interviews this year, and, and so did Warburton. I, I felt a lot more desire from them to be professionals. Because also, you look at Corboa, we didn't sign him when we were in League, League Two. We've signed him as a League One club, so he's got an even bigger jump than, than Warps had. Um, but you never know that. You can't always tell that. I think Cole's quite good at checking out his personalities of players. And when you make that switch to being a full-time professional, what I, what I love from Corbs is he, even when he's not picked for the team, which he hasn't been in the team since we lost to Portsmouth, but... I can see on his Instagram and Twitter and stuff like that, he's still going to all the games. He's living, you know, this contract. <laughs> he's loving it, you know, but he wants to be part of the club and wants to be full-time and wants to train and stuff like that. And you can't always guarantee that when you sign these, like, Sunday league goal-scoring legends. That when they get the money and they have to train every day, they just can't be asked. You never know. Yeah, I feel for Corabar a little bit because he's clearly a really good attacker. Clearly got prospect. something, yeah. But Keith likes players that will do everything, so they will. They'll he likes yes men as well. Stuff. He likes people that will that will graft, yeah. that will just. If he says jump, Corbeau is going to say how high because he wants yeah. to make it a professional footballer. So I think he, I you know I quite like this trend of, of signing um someone from the lower leagues. It gives the fans a little bit of uh, imagination yeah. behind the signing. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Um, I've that's, just, just quickly done a um a bit of uh, journalistic digging. Uh, in, uh, that's shorthand for typed in Leon Lobjoy into into Google. He's currently <laughs> at Town, uh, where he's he's scored nine goals so far this season. But obviously they haven't played since November, start of November. Brilliantly on his um on his um player profile, it says how's how's this for passive aggressive? After a remarkable season with the now defunct Buckingham Town, a move to Northampton Town for whatever reason didn't quite work out, and he returned <laughs> to non-league football. Ooh, what does a St. Neots Town webmaster know that we don't? Sounds like a story, this does. <laughs> for whatever reason, that's amazing. Yeah, wow. And savoury incident on the training ground. No. <laughs> <Is> that- yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, that's a good one from Jeff because we always like the double L one, so he's got extra points for that one. I'll read a couple from tweeters. Um, 
Uh, Robert Kirby has gone for Leon Constantine. Now, for me, he I don't think you can say that a player has single-handedly undone all the good work of a manager like um, Stuart Gray, <laughs> but you probably could also argue that. Uh, Jesse, you've got a story about Leon Constantine, haven't you? Yeah, it's um, it's it, it's not directly about him. I just yeah. uh, um, I think he's I think he is the reason for the um for Ryan Gilligan's dislike of me. Um, never had it confirmed. Apparently, it was because I was being overly critical of Leon Constantine in some of the things I'd written. Um, there's a very easy way to solve that: is uh, just not be shit, and I won't be critical. Um, so, uh, what it was? I was on a night out with um. A lot of anecdotes on this podcast begin with "I was on a night out," don't they? Which is perhaps. Dale Winton was it, Jeff? No, 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 uh, no. Daytime uh, game show presenters were involved. I was, it was <laughs> my brother and our mate, and uh, my mate's then father-in-law. He's not anymore because they got divorced. Very, very messy business. Um, but this guy, uh, he's sort of in his sixties or whatever. He's a huge Cobblers fan, massive Cobblers fan. You know. Season ticket every year, no question. Lo- loves the club, uh, and I let it slip uh, it, during the course of the evening that Leon Constantine was on three grand a week when he was at the Cobblers. And this guy was utterly crestfallen with this news that they'd they'd spent so much on someone who did absolutely nothing, uh, and like you say, pro- pro- really, uh, you know, undid a lot of the good work of the grey era. And um, he, he went into like this deep depression on the night out and we c- couldn't really talk to him. He like, went all quiet and sort of, um, you know, and, and he just kept saying to it, he kept, just kept saying to himself, three grand a week and shaking his head and he couldn't believe it. I, I hate bit... to think what he thinks of how much uh, Kevin Van Veen was getting every week. Yeah. <laughs> there's that was, that there's was... plenty of players that have been pay- paid as, we, we, I, one of my mates, I think we were at Wimbledon away or something, and Kevin Van Bean was having one of his absolute stinkers. It was when we got relegated from League One. And every time he shouted at him, because you know what Wimbledon's gold ground now was like, and you're obviously right next to the pitch. Every time he shouted something at him, the amount of money that he was being paid a week got more and more. So by the end of the week, he was like, 30 grand a week for that? Just <laughs> screaming at him on the pitch. <laughs> obviously, he was probably inebriated at the time as well, so we need to stop. Stop with the stories when everybody's had had a few too many beers, but uh, that is a lot of money for Liam Constantine. Yeah, especially because like three grand a week was kind of like the uh, not the holy grail, but it was like a marker of real yeah. quality. Like, three grand a week was what Josh Lowe had got, and Martin Smith had got, and uh, Akin Femmer had got. You know, mm. if you're spending three grand a week, you're getting someone that's gar- going to guarantee to be a wicked player, and yeah. he just really was not. <laughs> <laughs> It's a real shame because Stuart Gray had made some brilliant signings, absolutely mm. superb ones, you know, Schubert's, GFAs, people like that, Bayo. Um, but then, just, just God knows what he was thinking. I think Constantine had played for Leeds United, is that right, Jeff? So yeah, he, had a he did really well with South End, didn't he? And had a good, he got a couple of good moves based off that. But they signed him really late in that close season. Don't know that he'd actually had much of a pre-season. Not that that's particularly a reason why he was so bad. But he scored in the opening game of the season, didn't he? He scored on his debut. Uh, and then I'm not, not sure he scored again. Not, definitely not for a long time anyway. Yeah, I'm just thinking that a lot of your nights out end with someone sort of wistfully looking into the distance. And, uh, <laughs> it was Mark Cooper, wasn't it, as well, Jeff? It was Mark Cooper, yeah. Yeah, uh, Did he have his top and everything? Dale Winton. Sorry, go on. 
he had his top <laughs> off or something, didn't he, or something? Yeah, he had his, top yeah. his shirt was completely <laughs> ripped open, but the buttons <laughs> were, were no more. And he was back, smoking, he was covered in sweat. Sorry, he was smoking, wasn't he, as well? Not smoking, yeah, yeah, but the. <laughs> The 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 um the curtain was drawn back that night very much so. <laughs> this is the uh this is the effect that you have on your 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 people you have a night out with. You just make them a bit more philosophical maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. To be honest with you, three thousand pound a week for Leon Constantine that probably depressed me on a night <laughs> out as well. Like God, you know, you wouldn't pay him five hundred quid really. No. So yeah, um, we'll wrap up now because um. I've got to nip off to the old house at home. I'm meeting um, Sean Dyson, <laughs> daytime TV presenters. Um, I'm sorry we couldn't read out all the, uh, you know, Twitter stuff about um, the letter L. There's so many. Francois Laurent is a good one from Phil Kirby. Thanks, everyone, for joining in, and we'll speak again next week. Take it easy. Thanks a lot. Cheers, guys. Uh, for me. Cheers, guys. Have a good night. Take it easy. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.